Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. In this week's episode, we're looking at Red Bull and Ferrari and understanding how they identified strengths and weaknesses in their own organization and then utilized those to design and develop two brilliant yet completely different F1 cars and what we can take away from that to apply to our daily lives. Welcome back to Pit Lane Life Lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things. You only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won. So it could be deemed that's, that's a failure. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast. Thank you very much, as ever, wherever it is you are in the world, however it is you're listening, and whatever it is you're up to whilst listening. I appreciate every single one of you joining me for an hour that I hope will provide some kind of value to you, some way of prompting a new train of thought in you that maybe asks different questions of you that you may not have otherwise thought of. Perhaps I hope there's something that we can take from the world of Formula One that you can apply directly to your own lives, to your own daily routines, to your own businesses, to your jobs, to your family situations, whatever it might be. I firmly believe that Formula One, this elite environment that is the F1 industry that I've had the privilege of spending so many years of my life immersed in, can offer us all so much so much more than most people ever realise. So I want to talk about a couple of different subjects today. They have been kicked off or centred around at least the Monaco Grand Prix. I'm recording this on Sunday evening, having watched the entire Monaco Grand Prix weekend. And look, as ever, I look at this through perhaps a different perspective than many people. Firstly, through my time in the sport, having given me a different perception of it from my time on the inside, but also thinking about what I can learn from it, thinking about some of the things that have happened and how I can relate that to our everyday. And that's exactly what I did this weekend because I was watching the Monaco Grand Prix weekend building up through the practice sessions, through Saturday in qualifying. And there were a couple of moments where we had two cars, particularly of note, the Red Bull and the Ferrari, the class of the field in 2022, with very different designs, very different design concepts in some areas. They have taken slightly different interpretations of the 2022 regulations that, of course, are new for this year. And they've both come up with very different looking cars, very different conceptual cars. And yet their performance on certain days at certain racetracks is almost inseparable. And so it was for much of the Monaco Grand Prix weekend. The reason it jumped to note for me was a couple of times during the practice sessions, and I think again at some point in qualifying, we had a number of cars, and actually notably there were two Red Bulls and two Ferraris on separate occasions that had exactly the same lap time. I mean to within one one thousandth of a second. Nothing between them. Exactly the same lap time after a complete circulation of the Monaco Grand Prix track. I've had that before. That's not necessarily something that is entirely unique. It's not unusual. It is unusual, but it's not unique to have two cars do a lap at exactly the same lap time. However, what this prompted in me, this thought process that I started off the back of that was, well, hang on a minute. These are two cars that are wildly different 
in the way they have been designed, the thought process that went into interpreting those regulations at the two different teams was wildly different. You can look at those two cars and they look completely different to each other. They have different ways of approaching the different challenges that the 2022 cars throw up. They have had, of course, a different set of people reading through those regulations, trying to find the loopholes, trying to find the areas that are worth exploiting. Of course, we're in a budget-capped era, so the teams now have to be incredibly efficient and careful about where they put their resources, which areas they want to focus on. And between Ferrari and Red Bull, if we take those two teams as, a, as, a, as an example here, they have focused on some different areas. They haven't put all of their money into exactly the same concepts, exactly the same design philosophies. And I thought that was really interesting because if you have two completely different ways of looking at this problem, the same problem, how do you get a Formula One car from the lights going out to the checkered flag falling at as many of the racetracks that we visit throughout a year as quickly as possible, quicker than the competition, if that's your same problem, if everyone's working to that same challenge and yet you look at it in completely different ways and the end result is still that the teams between those two cars are occasionally inseparable to one thousandth of a second. Isn't that quite remarkable? Isn't that insane that over months, in fact, many, many months, over a year, the two teams have been working away in their separate factories on these evolving regulations until the point where they were locked in place. And then they shut their doors and in ultimate secrecy, they worked away to try and find the best way to navigate these new technical regulations. And they came up with two different solutions that both seemingly are incredibly close to each other. And the reason that I think this is worthy of discussing in this particular podcast is because I feel like that's a major metaphor for life. This idea that there is more than one way to achieve success or to navigate a problem or a challenge. There isn't just one way in many of the things that we face in our lives. The idea that everybody should be doing things the same way is an absolute fallacy. And if we refer it back to the Red Bull Ferrari situation, it's a nice example in some ways of that. There are two very different ways, and we're talking about the elite level, the highest echelons of motorsport here, the very best people in each of those businesses, the best in the game working on the same problem, working to the finest of margins, looking for every last one thousandth of a second that they can squeeze out of their car. And in two completely separate countries, let alone separate factories, locked well away from each other, they have produced two separate ways of overcoming the same challenge with very, very similar solutions. And I say similar very deliberately. I'll come back to that in a moment. Isn't that just a metaphor for us where we all face quite often very similar challenges? We're all facing challenges around money, around health, around social situations. We've faced challenges of a global pandemic in recent times. We all face similar challenges around our working life quite often. We've got political challenges, maybe within the workplace, within our family situations, and we're all trying to find ways to navigate those challenges that we all face all of the time. Yet society quite often tells us that there is one way to do that, and we should all be following this particular way, whatever that is. We go on to places like social media, 
which become an echo chamber for those views, those popularized views. The views of one particular person or one particular group in society that shout louder than anyone else about those views. And then other people who are constantly seeing that in places like their social media feed feel like, well, look, I'm hearing it. I'm seeing it all the time. This echo chamber that is my phone, when I open up these social media apps, they are all shouting at me that this is how I should be living my life. And so it's perhaps no surprise that many people, particularly a younger generation, perhaps just embarking on this journey of life, overcoming these challenges that the, let's say, the more mature of us have faced for many years and found our own ways to navigate. The younger generation are looking to things like social media, television, YouTube, whatever it might be, for answers. They're looking for guidance around the challenges that they are facing in their life. And if social media is this echo chamber that we've created ourselves, make no mistake, we, so we follow and unfollow people quite often that back up our own views, that agree with what we're saying, that create a similar philosophy for life than the one that we might hold dear to us. If we're using that as our guiding light through life, it may be no surprise that we come out of that thinking, this is how we have to do it. This is how we have to get through this particular challenge. These are the solutions to the problems that I'm facing because I can see everyone else is doing it this way and they're all saying it's working. But the reality, of course, in our lives, in our wider world, is that there is more than just one way. There is not just one single way to carve your way through the difficulties that we face on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. The difficulties that you are facing or that I am facing are not necessarily the same. The difficulties of the people that you see in your social media feed are not necessarily the same ones that you're facing. And even if they're the same type of challenge, the circumstances that surround those could be completely different. And my point is that like Red Bull and Ferrari, they didn't look for guidance from the outside world. You don't have that luxury or that opportunity in the world of Formula One at that stage of a car's conceptual design. You are locked away. You're doing it on your own in the midst of secrecy behind closed doors. So what you do in that scenario is you look at what you have available, what resource do you have in terms of finance, obviously, but also in terms of technical. But most importantly, you look at your organization and you say, well, what are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? What are we best at? Where can we exploit the things that we have that maybe our competition don't have? And when it came to the 2022 cars, perhaps no surprise that when it came to Red Bull, they looked at aerodynamics. They had Adrian Newey guiding the design process. Adrian, the aerodynamics king in many people's eyes, looked at how he could possibly make this car that was aerodynamically efficient, was as slippery through the air as possible, could go as quickly as possible in a straight line, enabling overtaking opportunities down the long straights that most racetracks have, yet not be compromised too much in the corners, still have enough downforce to generate the grip that they need, but without too much drag that would hold them back in terms of top speed. That was the thing that they thought they could exploit to their advantage over and above the competition. Whereas over in Italy, Ferrari, working away in their factory, looked at what opportunities they had. And they maybe felt that they had an opportunity from the power unit side that wasn't yet fully tapped, wasn't yet fully exploited. And they went down this route of, if you believe the rumours, of a smaller turbo. 
Now, a smaller turbo will spool up, will spin up quicker, will give you a bigger punch out of the corners, bigger drive, faster drive, get up to that acceleration, get up to that speed more quickly. But then maybe in terms of top end performance, top end speed, they might top out a little bit earlier than perhaps a Red Bull will. So these are two cars that have very different strengths and weaknesses. The Ferrari may be much quicker through the corners, through the twisty bits of a racetrack. The Red Bull seemingly much faster down the straights. Now, of course, both of those things bring with them pros and cons. The Red Bull is able on a circuit that has long, fast straights to utilise that top speed advantage to overtake the other cars. And at the end of that straight, they hopefully they'll find themselves in front. Whereas the Ferrari is banking on the fact that a racetrack is made up mostly of corners and so by exploiting their strengths of being able to punch out of these slower speed corners by maximising the downforce they have on their car, even at perhaps a small cost in terms of overall top speed, they'll be able to build their lap time through the twisty bits of the racetrack. Two very different ways at looking at the same problem And yet on many occasions this year, we've seen both of those very different cars deliver very similar, if not the same, lap time. Obviously, the lesson here for us is that when we're facing a challenge, when we are thrown a challenge in life, that happens all of the time. Whether they are the more regular challenges that we all seem to face on a daily basis or something that comes out of the blue, something that's thrown at us that we weren't expecting. The first question that we should be asking ourselves is, how are we going to deal with this? How are we best equipped to deal with this? Not, how does everybody else deal with this? Now, there is value in asking for advice. I'm not saying there isn't. I'm not saying there's not value in taking other people's opinions or perspectives. Of course, there is. But that should be tempered with understanding what your own strengths and weaknesses are. How are you best placed to deal with this particular challenge? Because you, and only you, quite frankly, fully understand just how good or not you are at certain aspects of your character, of your mentality, of your physicality. Now, if we go back to the F1 analogy here, with a brand new Formula One car, when it comes to pre-season, the team having designed and built this thing, having created this car that came out of a series of ideas from people that then manifests itself, first of all, in models, in digital models that are simulated, and then a real model that goes in the wind tunnel. And then eventually the real car is presented to a racetrack. And during the course of that entire pre-season process, the team are working away, trying to understand what it is they've got. What is their car like? What are the strengths and weaknesses of this car that they've designed. Is it going to be fast in a straight line? Is it going to be kind to its tyres? Is it going to be responsive to the changes and the tweaks in terms of setup that the engineers and the driver will want to make over a race weekend? Is it going to be light and nimble or is it going to be slightly heavier and a little bit more cumbersome? Is it going to work better in low downforce conditions or higher downforce conditions? These are all the kinds of things that pre-season And as the season goes on through practice sessions, of course, the team are desperate to try and find out, to get a handle on, to get an understanding of. They need to become fully aware of exactly what their car is like. 
only once they know that information, and that takes a lot of time, a lot of hard work, a lot of laps, a lot of data collection, a lot of data analysis, a lot of different people trying to figure out the answers from all this information they're gathering. But only once they have those answers and that information and that awareness of exactly what the characteristics of their car are, can they go through a Grand Prix weekend executing in the perfect way possible? How can they possibly get the best out of their car unless they fully understand exactly what their car's like? It's one of the big problems that Mercedes has been struggling with in the first part of this season. They didn't fully understand some of the problems they were encountering. They didn't fully understand some of the characteristics their car was displaying. And because they didn't fully understand them, they couldn't then overcome them. They couldn't turn that car's strengths and weaknesses to an advantage because they didn't have a full handle, a full understanding of exactly what they were or how to harness them. And exactly the same thing applies to you and I. When it comes to facing challenges and problems that are going to come our way inevitably through our life, we are best placed to find a way to deal with those things only when we have a full awareness of what our own strengths and weaknesses are. Becoming self-aware is a process that actually takes most of our lives. The early phases of our lives are a little bit like pre-season in Formula One. But instead of having a multitude, hundreds of people working away on the problem, working away to try and gather information and understand exactly what a Formula One car is going to do when we throw it into battle, we're on our own in life. We are quite often on our own trying to figure out who we are, what we're good at, what we're not quite so good at, what we struggle with, where we excel, how we can use our strengths to help other people or to help ourselves. And so if you take what I'm saying about this Formula One analogy to be true, in that it is impossible to exploit your Formula One car to get the very best out of it and to maximise the opportunities you have with that car unless you fully understand it. If you believe that philosophy to be true, and we say that that's a good analogy for life, and I firmly believe that it is, then we're exactly the same. We cannot maximise our opportunities in life we cannot be best placed to deal with the things that life throws at us and to turn some of those into huge advantages for us unless we fully understand who we are, what we're about and what we're good at and what we're not so good at. Where are we going to excel in life? Where are we best placed to utilise our skills, our experience, our strengths? The things that have built up over time in the early phase of our life through our pre-season testing phase. What have we learned through that phase that we can now apply to the stages of our life that come later? It's a really important part of life that we don't become aware of its necessity quite often until the mid-phase of our lives. In our early days, as kids, of course, we don't care. We're just having fun. We're exploring. We're trying to just figure out what exactly we are. What is life? What is happening around us? And then as we go through teenage years, we're starting to question a few more things. We're starting to understand a little bit more about who we are. But the world is changing around us. Our bodies are changing. Our minds are changing. We're figuring all of that out as we go. We haven't yet got a stable platform to work with. We're constantly evolving through that phase of our life in some quite extreme ways, both physically and mentally through our teenage years. And then we get into our 20s 
And we're expected at that point to have all the answers. Society says to us, right, you've come out of university, you've come out of school, now you've got to go and get a job. Now you've got to decide what your career is going to be. So who are you? What are your strengths and weaknesses? What are you good at? What do you enjoy? These questions are thrown at us, and yet we don't always have those answers at that stage. In reality, there is no moment in life, there's no age we arrive at where we should have the answers. That's just a fallacy. That does not exist. That's what society tries to pigeonhole us. We come out of uni and we're expected to make the decision about where our career is going to be probably for the next 40 years of our lives. I mean, that's nonsense. That is something that I feel like we put pressure on our children unnecessarily these days in the society that we live in. As humans, we're constantly evolving beings. We're morphing continuously into different versions of ourselves. At every stage in life, we're different. Just throw yourself back in your mind now to a period that was 10, 20 years ago. We're completely different people back then. We had a completely different set of experiences and knowledge to the ones that we have today. And that completely changes our way of thinking about ourselves and about the world around us. Our skills were very different, perhaps, back then. We've learned new ones. It's entirely possible even that we've created weaknesses in ourselves by generating or developing bad habits. The point is, it doesn't really matter what our strengths are or what weaknesses we might have. The point is understanding what they are so that we can exploit them to our advantage. It doesn't really matter that Ferrari took the viewpoint of having that acceleration out of the slow corners or having greater downforce at the expense of perhaps greater drag, whereas Red Bull went a completely different route. Red Bull exploited their strengths of being able to develop a highly aerodynamically efficient car and generate that top speed, just like a Formula One team might have departments within their organisation that they feel are perhaps stronger than others, that they feel might be their biggest strength, where they have brilliant people, some of the best in the business, that no other team could possibly compete on that level with them in that particular area. If that's the case, you exploit that area. They also might have areas of their organization where perhaps they're not as strong. Maybe they don't have as good a driver as another team. Maybe other areas of their organization might have some inherent tiny weaknesses. That's okay because we're exactly the same as that. We all of us, every single one of you listening to this podcast have things that you're good at and others that maybe you struggle with just a little bit more. All of that is perfectly okay as long as you're aware of what they are. So how do you become self-aware? How do you become aware of these things? And there are two ways that that can happen. One is you just wait because over time, as the years roll by, you gradually just inevitably build that experience. You start to have so many experiences in your life that you just get the answers to those questions. But that could take until your late 70s. That could take till the very closing stages of your life to fully have an appreciation of who you really are. The other way is to actively go out and seek it. It's to actively chase down the answers to who you are, to what you are, to what powers you have, to what weaknesses you have. To do that, you have to actively ask yourselves those questions, and then you have to dedicate enough time, like the preseason testing process, where it's all about gathering information as quickly as possible, getting to the answers as efficiently, as succinctly as you can, because the sooner you know those answers, the sooner you can exploit them. 
In life, it's the same. If you want to become self-aware, if you want to maximise your chances, your opportunities, if you want to get the best out of yourself in whatever situation you face, asking yourselves the questions that will then lead on to the answers that you need has to become a priority. You have to actually dedicate time to this process. You have to sit down. You have to take a moment to yourself. You have to get out of the rat race, switch off from the distractions of life and dedicate time to this, to this process, to questioning yourself and then exploring what those answers might be, to going through processes of trial and error, experimentation, things that could be massive parts of your life or could be tiny little details on a daily basis where you try something, if it works, great, you take note of it. If it doesn't, you ask yourself why it didn't work. What feelings did you have when you went through that particular process that day? Did you struggle? Did you feel stressed? And if so, why do you think that was? Which moments triggered that stress in your life? And if you start to identify those moments, if you start to identify the things that stress you out, for example, you can then start to learn to perhaps think about avoiding those. Take a slightly different path that has less chance of encountering those particular problems. For me, one of the things that I now know, and I've known this for a few years, but it took me some time to figure it out. One thing that really does stress me out is being late. I hate being late. And so now I know that I need to actively mitigate against that by being perhaps a little bit over the top in terms of trying to be on time or be early to make sure that I mitigate against problems that I might encounter on the way somewhere that might then make me late. Because I know if that happens, my stress levels are going to go through the roof and then I won't be performing in the way that I need to perform. If I arrive at a meeting stressed and out of breath because I'm running, I'm desperate to try and make up the lost time, I'm definitely not performing the way I should do when I enter that meeting. I'm not prepared in the right way. And so the preparation has to take another step further back. The preparation goes long before I leave, probably long before I even go to bed the night before waking up the next day to drive off or head off to that meeting. I'm starting to wind back from the moment I need to be there, look at a schedule and plan my departure time well in advance to, in, to take into consideration the unpredictable moments. Now, you can never absolutely stop these things happening. You can never mitigate against all manner of unforeseen circumstances that will happen. We'll all face them. But if I can take away a few, if I can minimise them, I just maximise my chances of arriving at that particular meeting or that moment in my life in a better state than I otherwise would. I'd like to think that some of the strengths that I've come to discover in me are communication and staying calm under pressure, two things that I particularly think I excel at. But those are things that I think if I'd ever asked myself that question, what are my strengths and weaknesses back in my late teenage years or my early 20s, I don't think I'd have said those things. I don't think I had understood that I was a great communicator back then. I don't think the idea of dealing with pressure well, I don't think I'd come up against enough circumstances to give me evidence that that was a thing, that that was something that I feel that I'm good at. Only as over time you encounter more and more of those moments in life where you're thrown the challenges and you either deal with them or you struggle, do you start to build up this picture. So if we start to question ourselves more often, if we start to put ourselves in more of these scenarios and test ourselves more often, do we start to get the answers more quickly? Do we start to build that picture of ourselves 
that gets us closer to a position of self-awareness. So we can look back at past experiences in our life for evidence of the things that we're good at, maybe not so good at, the things that we did well or not so well, areas where we struggled or where we excelled. That evidence is all there if we start digging a little bit deeper to try and find it. But also we can ask other people. We can seek advice or feedback from the people that we trust around us to help us on that journey of discovery. Obviously, sometimes it's easier to ask about the things that we're good at, to ask other people to give us feedback on what they think we're good at. Sometimes the more difficult conversation is asking those same questions around our weaknesses, asking other people to feed back on the things that we don't necessarily do so well, the things that we may not be so aware of or may not want to be on the face of it so aware of. What do other people see in us that make life more difficult for people, where they see us struggling at times, where they see us being uncomfortable, where perhaps some of our actions or our behaviours affect other people in a negative way. We need to know these things just as much as we need to know what we're good at. Because if we want to build this picture of ourselves, we want to build this picture of our lives that we can then take away and utilise to our advantage to find a path through life that maximises our skills and our strengths, In just the same way, we should be trying to find a path through life that either minimises the effects of our weaknesses or makes us aware that in those moments when we encounter them, we may need to ask for help. We may need support from our outside network. Perhaps in those moments in life when we encounter the situations where we might come up against the weaknesses we have inherently, we might need some outside support network to help us. If we know that, it's absolutely fine. It's absolutely okay. We've all got those weaknesses. And if we switch on our phones, we check our social media, you'd be forgiven for thinking that nobody has any. Nobody ever talks about their weaknesses or the things they've done badly, the areas where they've struggled. They only want to shout about the things that have gone well, their successes in life, the things they've achieved. They want to show off. And look, people are proud of the things they achieve. That's absolutely fine. But if the entirety of our social media network, if this echo chamber that is our social media apps that we open on our phones only reflects one element of society, a society where no one's struggling, no one's getting anything wrong, everyone's doing something a certain way, if we fall into the trap of using that as our roadmap through life, we will never ever even be willing or encouraged to explore our own weaknesses. We will only want to exploit our strengths and then one day something will pop up. Something will come into our life where we're not prepared for it. It will tap into our weaknesses, not our strengths. We will struggle to cope with that particular situation where maybe if we'd been aware of that in the first place, we might have been able to avoid the situation right from the off. If we're self-aware, we have a much better chance of being more prepared to go into battle. We can actively choose the battles that we go into based on our strengths and weaknesses. And we can utilise that in the world of work, in our careers, in our relationships. We can avoid many of the pitfalls of our lives by choosing a path that avoids those pitfalls in the first place. Because we know in advance that they will be pitfalls. Pitfalls are only pitfalls if we don't know they're coming, if we don't know what they are. We stumble into them. They're the things that we fall into when we're not looking where we're going. So opening our eyes and tapping into one of the most powerful tools available to us, 
becoming more self-aware is one of the keys to living a more successful, more fulfilling life. A life that is free from many of those pitfalls that other people might fall into. We can predict much of this if we look back on what's gone before for evidence of our best route to success. If you think back to the Ferrari and Red Bull example, that's exactly what they did. They looked at what they had available and thought, okay, how is the best way for us? Not what's the most generic best way for anybody to approach the 2022 regulations, but how is it best for us to approach these regulations? How can we utilize the people, the tools, the resources that we have available to us to maximize our best way through this path of 2022. And that's exactly what they did. Perhaps only over time will we know who's actually done the best job. But it may not just be who did the best job of designing the right car concept. There are so many other factors that go into a Grand Prix season, but hopefully both Red Bull and Ferrari utilised their skills and maximised their resources to create the best car that they could create in the moment. That's what Formula One teams do incredibly well. They have a full understanding of who they are as a team and they utilize that. They maximize that to the best of their ability. And then, of course, once the car is built, they learn about it. They extract as much information from it. They ask those questions that I'm asking you to ask of yourselves. What are our strengths and what are our weaknesses? How can we maximize our strengths? How can we minimize our weaknesses? The very same questions that we can ask ourselves and should be asking ourselves more often. Of course, in a Formula One team, once you've identified those strengths and weaknesses, you need to either maintain your strengths or build on those strengths. You may need to keep continually bringing in new people investing in technology that can help support those strengths in your organization. And if you've got weaknesses, if you identify weaknesses within the company, perhaps you need to bring in extra strength. Perhaps you need to recruit. Perhaps you do need to invest even more heavily in those areas because you are lacking in resource or technology. Identifying the problems and the strengths is the very first stage. It's the same for us. If we identify weaknesses, it may be that we can start to work on those things, that we can minimize their impacts, both by taking a different path through life, but also trying to work on those weaknesses ourselves, trying to get rid of some of those bad habits that we might have fallen into developing our strengths even more, identifying things that we're good at or that we enjoy is a great basis, a great platform, a springboard for us to keep going even further, to use it as a platform to leap from and expand or develop those strengths. Like an F1 team debriefs after every single event, after every race weekend or test session, they debrief, they identify the things that went well, the things that didn't go so well. And off the back of that debrief process, a plan of action is put into place. Again, we should be doing exactly the same things. Debriefing at the end of a day or at the end of a week, both personally in terms of our personal or social situation, our family situations, but obviously on a work front, on a career front, inside our companies and businesses, debrief should be a constant and continuous part of our routines. They are one of the most valuable sources of information gathering that then identify our strengths and weaknesses. And from there, a plan of attack, a plan of action is a great way to exploit those and develop them. 
A Formula One car is being developed continually all the way through its life. It never stops. We bring new parts. We try new setups. We are always experimenting with it. We're always trying to figure out new ways to get the best out of that car. And if we take exactly the same philosophy in our lives, bringing new ideas to our lives, to our ways of living, questioning what we've done before and what might be coming next, looking for new ways of doing things, asking ourselves the questions of why do we do something a certain way and is that actually the best way or is it just the way we've always done it? Those kind of questions just provoke a different way of thinking about the next stage of our lives. And if we think differently about the next stage of our lives to the stage that's gone previously, we open up a massive new set of opportunities for us if we get the answers right. And the only way we get the answers right is by delving deeply into those questions, dedicating time, energy to them, making them a priority in our lives rather than just skipping through it without giving it a thought. It's exactly the same philosophy that generates success in the biggest and best Formula One teams. And we can do exactly the same. Okay, now the other thing that always comes out of the Monaco Grand Prix weekend is this perennial question of does Monaco deserve a place on the F1 calendar? And typically that question comes because the racing is quite often, well, not very good. It's a old school racetrack that's tight and twisty and narrow. And yet over time, the cars have evolved into huge, great big, long and heavy beasts that are no longer as small and nimble and suited to that racetrack as perhaps they once were. As it happens, the race that I've just watched this afternoon from Monaco, uh, I'm sure many of you watched it too, was actually quite entertaining. But it wasn't because of the racetrack, it wasn't because of the cars, it was because of weather. It was an unpredictable event that spiced it all up. We had crashes, we had mistakes, we had delays, we had red flags, we had safety cars, we had the whole lot. And all of that unpredictability generated something that was a lot more entertaining than it otherwise would have been. Had we not had that inclement weather and that unpredictable weather, I'm sure the same conversations would have been taking place on Monday morning particularly given that this particular event is in the final year of its current contract. So the questions I'm sure will still arise that should Monaco be on a Formula One calendar from 2023 onwards, a calendar that is now so diverse in terms of the racetracks and the venues that we go to, a calendar that next year will include the likes of Vegas, the Las Vegas Strip, vying perhaps for this jewel in the crown title that Monaco has held for so long. So should Monaco have a place in modern Formula One or should we just ditch it and get rid of it? They don't pay the race fees that many of the more modern and newer circuits on the calendar are forced to pay. Monaco doesn't typically deliver the same entertaining Grand Prix racing that we have become accustomed to and now expect in an era of this sport where the rules have changed to try and generate exactly that. Cars that can follow each other more closely, that can overtake each other a little bit more easily, that can fight wheel to wheel. Well, all of that goes out of the window when we get to Monaco. So does it deserve a spot? Those questions will come around and around and around. And I'm sure at least half of you listening to this podcast will be shouting now at your speakers saying, no, it doesn't absolutely get rid of it. We want to see great racing and that cannot happen year in, year out at Monaco. My argument, my counter argument to that is that whilst I wholeheartedly agree that in the most part, 
The Grand Prix on a Sunday in Monaco is dull. There are other elements of a Monaco Grand Prix weekend that for me offer the greatest spectacle on the calendar. Qualifying on a Saturday afternoon in Monaco is for me the highlight of a Grand Prix weekend there. It's a challenge for the drivers that they don't face to the same level, to the same extreme level at any other racetrack that we visit. And for me, it tests the precision, the accuracy, the skill level, the ability to deliver under the most extreme pressure when it really matters without making any mistakes. Mistakes are punished in a way that they're not at most other racetracks. If you make a mistake in Monaco, you're almost certainly in the wall. But even bigger than that, you're in the wall and that disrupts the flow of your weekend. You can have the quickest car on the grid, but if you're starting the race back in 15th place because of a disastrous qualifying, your race is effectively over before it's even begun. And all of those elements for me, combined with the high risk factor that is the Monaco Grand Prix track anyway, just mean that the focus of that particular weekend, in my eyes, completely shifts away from Sunday, but absolutely focuses on Saturday. Saturday becomes the focal point of the weekend. And it becomes no less entertaining for me as a Grand Prix event. It's just that we have to look at it perhaps slightly differently to most other events on the calendar. At many Grand Prix over the course of the season, if we know that one particular car has a performance advantage over another at a more traditional racetrack on Saturday, well, that car is typically going to come out on top. In Monaco, though, there are so many variables, there are so many factors at play that throw that focus or that attention onto the skill and the ability of the driver to deliver when it matters under pressure. And so with less attention on the technical aspects of a car and more on the human performance of the guy behind the wheel, for me, that provides entertainment in itself. And this is perhaps where I feel like there's another lesson for us to take away from this. Because whilst the first part of this podcast was all about becoming self-aware, gathering an understanding of what our own strengths and weaknesses are, and then being able to utilise those as we move through life, the same, of course, goes for the people around us. Having an appreciation that those people around us, the people we interact with on a daily basis, our family members or friends or our colleagues, equally have strengths and weaknesses. They have strengths and weaknesses that may be different to those that we have. They may be different to the ones that we see as being the most common traits in society. And equally, that's okay. Monaco as a racetrack has a completely different set of characteristics, a completely different set of strengths and weaknesses to most other traditional racetracks that we go to. I accept that on a Sunday, perhaps it often doesn't live up to most other places that we visit. But on a Saturday, it absolutely does. On a Saturday, there are not many other racetracks that can live up to the spectacle that Monaco delivers. And so if we embrace that, instead of taking that as a massive negative, if we embrace the strengths of Monaco, if we say, well, listen, it's all about the Saturday when we go to Monaco and what a Saturday it often is. That's a positive that we can take from that weekend. It may be a different positive to the one that most people might be looking for, but it's still a positive. And for me, it's a big one. The same goes for people. If we viewed everybody through the same lens in which we view ourselves, or the same lens that we view somebody else that we might look up to, 
a famous person, an idol, a movie star, sports star, if we judged everybody else by those same values in which we judge those people, looking for the same strengths that those people might display, we're only ever going to be disappointed. What we could do is look at people with a much more open mind in the same way that I'm suggesting we could look at Monaco, looking for strengths that might not be the most typical ones, might not be the most obvious ones. But if there are strengths, do they hold value? Do they add value? Can they add value to our own lives? Monaco, for me, adds value to the Grand Prix calendar in a different way to most other racetracks do. I worked at McLaren through an era where Ron Dennis had built the company up from almost nothing into this huge, massively successful group of technology companies that it is today. But Ron could be an incredibly difficult person to work for. He used to frustrate the hell out of me and many of my colleagues because of his his fastidious attention to detail, the particular nature of the things that were important to him that weren't necessarily on the same level of importance for many other people. It became incredibly annoying at times. It became frustrating. It became very, very difficult to work for Ron. It became quite difficult to have an appreciation for Ron's strengths in those moments because frustration was the overriding emotion that took over. And yet I had the ultimate respect for Ron in the end, because when I stood back and appreciated what value Ron brought to this company, which of course was undoubtedly huge, what value Ron has brought to my own life by instilling values in me that I otherwise may not have had the same level of focus on. That came from Ron Dennis. That came from a person who was very different to most other people in my circle. He wasn't the kind of person that if I had judged him, if I'd viewed him through the lens that I viewed most other people around me, I would have found it incredibly hard to find any affection for. Only once I opened my mind up and looked at him through a different perspective, from a different perspective, looking for the strengths that he offered, the value that he offered, was I able to appreciate just how good he was. But I had to actively step back and encourage myself not to generalise, to see the positives wherever they might be, rather than the negatives that might have leapt out, leapt off the page if I only viewed him through the same eyes that I viewed most other people, through eyes that either society or my own upbringing, my own past experiences had told me this is what a person, what a good person should look like. This is what a really frustrating person should look like, or an annoying person, and just pigeonholing them into those categories. It limits what we can take from life when we do that. In the same way that if we just view the Monaco Grand Prix as a negative, because on a Sunday, which is the bit that most other racetracks have all the focus on, understandably, but if we view it through the same lens that we view everything else on the calendar, we're just going to be disappointed. Whereas if we open up our mind and say, okay, what can it offer? And then we switch our focus to the Saturday. Actually, Monaco can offer something quite brilliant that we can't get in most other places. The same goes for human beings. My own wife has a completely different set of strengths and weaknesses to me. Some of those I can find incredibly frustrating. If I were to judge her through the parameters in which I judge myself, I'm only ever going to be disappointed in other people. 
because I'm expecting everybody else to be exactly the same as me, as the ideal that I have in my mind. And yet the reality is there are so many positives and negatives to be taken from so many different aspects of other people. And in the same way that I talked earlier about us becoming aware of ourselves, we need to also become aware of the people around us, aware that people can be different and that's great. That can offer something to us all and to society. My wife has strengths where I have weaknesses. Some of the things that I'm not so good at, where I struggle, she excels at. And I can either look at that through eyes of jealousy or annoyance that she's got something that I haven't got, that she's good where I'm weak or, and I've done that by the way, many, many times I have done that. It took me some time to overcome those kind of feelings. But the other way to look at this is the way I look at it now is that where she has strengths and I have weaknesses and I have strengths and she has weaknesses, together we can be amazing. What a strong partnership that could have the ability to create. If we take a societal picture on a bigger scale, of course, it's the same thing. We have a collection of people in our world who have different abilities, different strengths and weaknesses. Put us all together, we have the ability to be amazing if we complement each other's weaknesses and strengths. And a Grand Prix calendar could and should, in my mind, be the same. A collection of racetracks that have different strengths and weaknesses, that pose different challenges, that offer different types of value at different parts of the weekend. But for that to happen, we have to open our minds up and not judge every single thing or every single person through exactly the same metrics, using the same parameters for every single one. So whilst I fully expect many of you listening to this to disagree with my views on Monaco, that's perhaps also partly the point. We all are different people. We have different expectations in life. We judge things differently. We see things differently. And that's exactly what I'm talking about here. It's perfectly okay to have a diverse set of opinions. In fact, it should be encouraged. Those differences of opinions generate discussion, conversation, passion. And if we see those differences of opinions as all holding some kind of value contributing to the wider discussion, rather than just dismissing them because they're not the opinions that we hold, well, then the world can be a more colourful place. We don't have to agree with all of those opinions. In fact, we shouldn't. But if we can get to a point where we look at differences and we find the positives in them, rather than searching for the negatives, and we have grown into a society that typically does that, we have a negativity bias amongst us. If we can turn that around on an individual basis, just in small ways, imagine the change that it could bring about. The way to go about actioning a change like this is to physically or actively search for the positives in a moment where otherwise negatives might creep in more naturally. If you're having a if you're in a relationship with somebody and you get into a moment of argument or a moment of frustration, where somebody does something that annoys you. And perhaps it's something they do that annoys you on a regular basis. So when it happens, you roll your eyes, you take a big sigh, a deep breath, and that frustration pours out of you. Maybe you react in the wrong way. Perhaps one thing that might help is 
away from those moments, in a moment of calm, in a time when you're not necessarily with that person or when you're with that person and things are going really well. It's a happy moment. You're in love with each other or you are affectionate towards each other. You're making each other smile, perhaps, making each other laugh. Latch on to those things. Pick something from that person's character that really makes you smile, that fills you with joy. Perhaps the reason you got together in this relationship in the very beginning. Find the positives that you see in that person and take one, even if just a small one. Think of a moment where you had great times together, where that person made you laugh or made you smile. Think of something that that particular person is incredibly good at. Perhaps something that you're not so good at that they are. Perhaps just find some time to identify a strength or a moment in time where you shared a laugh together. Something that puts a smile onto your face. A moment you can recall that fills you with happiness. And once you've identified that thing, that trait, that character trait, or that moment in time, that characteristic, that part of their person that you love, once you've identified that, package it up, just box it up, metaphorically speaking, wrap it up in your mind and put it to one side, put it in your pocket. And when you have these moments of frustration, even the tiny ones, Go to that place, bring out that little package, unwrap it and remember the strengths and the positives that that person brings to your life. And you can start this process in the most small and mundane ways. When somebody says something that you disagree with, when somebody shares a viewpoint that's not the same as yours, when somebody does something that frustrates you a little bit, when someone leaves the toothpaste lid off the toothpaste at the end of a night, And that annoys you. Rather than seeing that as a massive negative, rather than being something that winds you up to the point where you feel like you've got to go in, storm into the other room and say something. In those little moments that don't really matter, go to that place that you've put away in your mind. Go to that package. Unwrap it. Remember what it is you love about the person. See the positives and have them override the negatives. If you can train yourself to immediately go to that place when that thing that annoys you about that person happens, which it will, you can find to alleviate the worries or the concerns, the frustrations, the annoyance. That stress starts to melt away just a little bit. And it takes time to do this. You can build up an even bigger and bigger picture of positivity as you move forward. The same thing can apply to your boss at work who might annoy the crap out of you on certain days. But maybe there's something that's good, something that's positive. There may be something that can make you smile. And even if you can't find something in a boss at work that you particularly love, that really makes you happy, maybe there's something that has made you laugh in the past. Maybe there's something light-hearted, a picture that gives you some joy, that makes you chuckle to yourself in a moment where otherwise you might build up the stress levels and become annoyed. If your boss says something to you, asks you to perform a task that you don't feel needs doing, you don't believe in, that you don't like doing, that you don't enjoy, perhaps it's something you really don't like, maybe imagine your boss in this moment that makes you chuckle, a picture of your boss that puts a smile on your face that you can just go to in your mind 
to melt the stress levels away in that moment. It may not change your overriding feeling of your boss, but it can help to alleviate the stress in you. Because if you are stressed and angry and annoyed going through your day, not only do you feel terrible, you're not performing at work. And just maybe having that little thing packaged up in your mind, that image that puts a smile on your face, that turns frustration into joy, into comedy, perhaps, or into love. Those little moments, those little go-to things might just start to help you get through the difficult moments in your day. And ultimately, having the ability to see strengths where others only see weaknesses, looking for positives where other people might immediately go to the negatives, can become a superpower. It can become a massive strength in your armory. It can be something that you can utilize in so many situations in life. Having an understanding that everybody and everything can offer something of value. In some situations, I appreciate it may be very small, but even in those moments, if you can go to that place, if you can find the one positive. And so even if in the end you disagree that Monaco deserves a place on the Formula One calendar moving forward, even if you ultimately still come to that same conclusion, the fact that it's here now and may well be for many years to come, Finding the positives in it will allow us to take some enjoyment from it, to take some value from it, even if it's not the value you ultimately would love to get. The same goes for the people around us. If we can open our minds up to see the value that other people offer, that other groups of society might offer, that people who hold very different opinions to us can offer, people with different physical or mental abilities What can they offer to us and to the wider world? Can we appreciate those things, even if we don't necessarily always agree with them? Our relationships can become stronger. We can become better at work. We can build stronger, more powerful businesses if we embrace the differences in the people that work for us or with us. In going back to the very beginning of this, if we look at the Red Bull versus Ferrari type situation... They have appreciated as a company, they have different sets of skills and weaknesses and embrace those. And of course, we can do the same. We can appreciate what we are good at. We can understand what we're not so good at. But just as importantly, and actually something that can really complement the areas where we might be weak, we can start to see strengths in other people around us and appreciate those more then we immediately leap to the negatives that is so often and commonly the case in our world. This practice that I talked about earlier of finding a tiny strength in a moment when other people might frustrate you and packaging it up and going to it in those difficult moments, you can take that to greater extremes as you get better at it. And of course, that's exactly what you have to do. Practice these things like anything, you become better at it, become more adept at it. When the big moments hit you, the big frustrating moments in life, which will come if you are more accomplished in this kind of practice, where you can immediately go to this place of positivity, find the strength, find the positive thing in the otherwise negative situation, those things can massively help you. So you can take this practice as far as you want. Start in the smaller moments that don't necessarily really matter, that just annoy you a little bit the toothpaste lid being left off the toothpaste. But you can build it up to the bigger moments in your life. The people that annoy you to the point of almost insanity because they might 
live their life through completely opposing belief systems and spread what you see as damaging messages to the wider world. Those people that you have a disdain for on the face of it. Can you find a way to see a positive in them? Even the smallest thing, just something that might put a smile on your face. It can be hard. It may not come naturally. It probably needs work. It needs effort to find a way to be able to do it. But if we can reach that place, of course, we can all begin to see more value in so many more areas of our life. Just like finding the value in Saturday afternoons at the Monaco Grand Prix over and above the negativity that many people perceive that comes on a Sunday. Have a think about it. Practice it over the next week. I'll be back in a week's time with another Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast. In the meantime, please leave me a rating and a review, especially in the Apple Podcast Store. It means the world to me. And whatever it is you're doing over the next few days, remember this. Do the right things. Do the things right. Ta-da.